0: Stephen Gross has been a practicing psychoanalyst for 25 years. He teaches at the Institute of Psychoanalysis and uh, a psychoanalytical team at University College London. He's had stories appear in Granter, amongst other uh, literary journals. And his first book, uh, The Examined Life, a series of stories about his encounters as a psychoanalyst over the last 25 years has reached critical acclaim in this country and also in the States. Um, A very warm welcome, please, to Mr. Stephen Gross. (laughs) Stephen, if I um, see a patient... Um, I ostensibly take a history, examine them, uh, investigations, and then a course of treatment, um, all of which adopt different fabrics. But f- for you, for a psychoanalyst, the, the history, the examination, the investigations, and the treatment in many ways are the
1: voice, the human voice. Is that a fair thing to say? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, maybe you could say more about what you mean in that instance about the workers. Because I don't want to be a catalyst, but I have to ask you. QED? I think one of the things which is different, um, in a first encounter, in a consultation, I'll have to do those things too. I'll try and take history and gather all that sort of information. But I think the most important thing for a psychoanalyst, in their first meeting with the patient is to make contact with the patient, to be present. I think that's important about every clinical encounter for physicians and for analysts, but the most important thing is that the patient should leave that first meeting feeling heard, that they've been really met by someone and that the reason that they came uh, has been heard and, and really listened to by the analyst. And funnily enough, that can happen sometimes fairly early in the meeting, Mm -hmm. you get a sense that the patient feels something. Sometimes it can take quite a long time in a consultation. But I think when that moment comes, uh, and it doesn't always come, but more often than not, I hope that it does, that by the end of the consultation, the patient will leave feeling that the thing which they brought to you has been listened to.
0: But I mean, in a sense, are they always, and this is perhaps a wide question, aware of what it is that they're bringing
1: to you? Uh, no. Um, and I can think of many instances where people begin by bringing someone else. Um, you know, my wife is this, 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 this. Um, but in fact, they're really bringing themselves. They, they will mm-hmm. make it that their problem is someone else. Mm-hmm. But in fact, um, the problem is uh, their own way of thinking, living. Mm. More often than not, of course, people come because they're in pain and mm. they're suffering. And they, they have a, an urgency to have that suffering changed. Mm. Um, one of the things I try talking about in my book is that, and I think it's, it's sort of one of the things to link up all the stories, was that um, change is difficult because people will want to change, but um, change involves loss. All change involves loss, even success. And people are sometimes rather taken aback to find themselves feeling depressed at moments of transition when they think it's something positive, like a wedding mm. or a job promotion or something good which has happened to them. Because they didn't perhaps think before that they're going to give up other things. Mm. Um, in my preface, I quote a woman who said, a patient who said, in all innocence, I want to change, but not if it means changing. And And, and I think that's...
0: I mean, and, and the sense of, of, of loss um, but actually extraordinarily not in a, in a way that feels negative permeates all of your all of your stories um, but what's I mean I guess what strikes me particularly about psychoanalysis and perhaps generally talking about um, the unconscious is it still for, for the majority of society maintains this almost magical aura um, which in your book is um, almost stripped bare, you know, and it's it's revealed as quite... Uh, the language you're using to describe things debrides it of this magic and makes it very clear. Very
1: nice. I think, generally, analysis, and a lot of therapies like at as slightly comical. Hmm. And, you, think, you know, to, I think most people think of Woody Allen Woody films Allen, yeah. and The New Yorker kind of cartoons and the kind of mocking and making fun of it. Um, what I wanted to try and do was write a book where um, the book's 31 stories and they're arranged across five sections. The early ones are about more about childhood problems. There's a large section about um, deception and um, the section about change. At the end, there's a section about uh, the end of life, death, and dying. And what I wanted to do was not just portray examples of my work, but it was also to give a kind of picture of a disposition, a way of thinking mm-hmm. and being. Um, I'm 60 years old. It was my first book. And I've been thinking about writing for a long time. And I had taught at UCL course on clinical writing. And my wife translated, uh, Adam Phillips asked her to translate Studies in Hysteria. Mm-hmm. Freud's case histories for Penguin Books, which she did. And we spent a summer going through her translation. And I think that, looking at the way his clinical stories, and you could see the way his there's a kind of exuberance. He's in his 30s. He's, his case notes, he's writing up. So even the tenses of them are obviously things he's just copying out mm-hmm. of the case notes. And some are narrativized. And, um, so, that, so there was a kind of motivation out of that. But I think the, the key thing, was there were personal things. Of um, As I said, I'm 60. Um, I have two young children. Um, my mother had died when I was, uh, I know she was about 64. So I had a kind of idea that I wanted to write something should I not be here for my children when they were older, a little bit older, in their teens or 20s. And I started writing these stories in a way to, as I said, give them not just a picture of, um, my work, but also how I thought about mm. things, mm. so they'd have a picture of um, uh, a, a kind of way of thinking.
0: And that, and that almost um, is, in many ways, completely alarming to me. Because as I was reading it, I was thinking, you know, so our topic this weekend is voice, mm-hmm. what it means for being human, what it means yes. for healing, and. After reading your book, I was suddenly conscious that things I thought of as innocuous kind of had icebergs buried beneath them. So, you know, within your book, you talk about a uh, wife talking about her husband who she no longer desires, calling him Sweetie, and you define this as sugar-coated hate. And then you talk about uh, being in a position when you were angry, and I did what many people do when they're angry, I made a joke, mm. um, so already I was conscious of doing that and, caught, uh, and using the word darling. Uh, yeah. And then, of course, finally also being boring. You, you yeah. talk about a, 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 um, a client, a patient who was boring and, and this impasse that you'd reached and recognizing that that was, in fact, a highly cultivated, if hidden, form of aggressiveness. Yeah. Um, it's astonishing things, the, the veneer is, in fact, um, hiding all sorts of
1: hidden voices. Yeah, I, th- I wanted to, to um, <coughs> yes, just bring in those things. I mean, the, the first one, uh, the woman who called her husband Sweetie, was, I mean, I tried also to choose things that I thought were um, also things that we all know, mm-hmm. where that was a, a and also obviously we, I write to learn too, so it was also thinking through the case as well. But for me, that was an example of sometimes how she'd made her husband quite cozy and desexualized him. that's what I was saying okay. in this piece. Okay. And, uh, but underneath it was clearly quite angry with him. And what I was trying to get at there was something which uh, to understand how she was angry with her husband as a way of turning all of her affection towards her child and she recognized something wasn't right. She could see it. And she was talking about it, wanted it to change, but didn't know how they'd gotten into this mm. impasse. Yes. Uh, and, so, and a lot of it is that. I think that's one of the things, I think, which surprised people, but um, is, is so important. It is uh, the analyst and patient will often hit an impasse, and it's the understanding of that. So a lot of the pieces in the book are about, as you said, um, a patient who's boring, a patient who will lie to me, a patient where I believe her husband's having an affair, mm. but she's unaware of yes. it, where, where you have clinical problems and you're struggling with how to sort them out yes. and and how to work it out with the patient and how to understand the thing together.
0: I mean, in a moment, if it's all right, I ask you to mm. read one, but I, just briefly, it just strikes me that, well, several things. One, in my encounters, our encounters, with patients in a more uh, frankly clinical um, context, that these kinds of subconscious um, voices are barely recognized by us. And indeed, my responses of sadness, rage, um, ambivalence to my patients then will enter the consultation room and the discussion in a way that um, I have very little hold on or grasp on. And only yesterday, um, people were talking about this notion. Our students were talking about this very often used term the patients being poor historians or bad historians, mm-hmm. uh, what it is that uh, as health professionals we do with the tremendous effective component of what we're contending with daily. It's, it's not, from my understanding, the place of psychoanalysis in medicine. Is, is an uncomfortable balance with clinical medicine and indeed modern, modern psychiatry. It's not well acknowledged. It's, is that a fair thing to say?
1: I think it is. I mean, I think it's a complex relationship. Um, and I think the emotional component of any illness, by the way, everything from, to me, a patient has a cold or mm-hmm. the flu, to patients who come along, her, I'll read a, the case, I think I'll read is a patient who is struggling with illness. Um, But uh, people will have a story about it. Mm. If you ask anyone, if I ask a patient of mine who has a Mm. cold, where did you get it? Oh, they'll tell you who gave it to them. And and how do they know? But we're, we're quite convinced, I know who gave me this cold. And people will have narratives. I'm always struck that everyone knows. I said my mom died at 64 cancer. She was quite convinced of what caused her cancer. Um, we are storytellers. We, um, and in a sense, we always want to know. It. I think too, you'll notice about the stories as you listen that they're usually about the origin of the illness. People mm. always have a theory about how things began. Mm. Um, the most powerful one is people, uh, you know, patients of mine who become pregnant will remember the time they became pregnant, mm. and they, they have it's quite convinced to them. Mm. And you know, people will have. We, in a sense, I think we feel more. Complete control, or yeah. controlled—be yeah. another way of describing it. If we can tell the story of our illness from beginning to end, whatever it is. Yes. So. Well, might we hear? Might yeah, we hear I'd, you... I'd be delighted. This is a story from towards the end of the book, and it's so it's in that last section called "Leaving," and it's called "Through Silence." Anthony M. had been seeing me for three months when after much discussion he went to get tested for HIV. Several days later he sat on the couch and sobbed into his hands. At age 29 he had just been told that he was HIV positive. It was 1989 and there was no treatment for AIDS. His doctor in London wouldn't tell him how much longer he could expect to live so he asked an old friend, a physician in San Francisco, With his immune system, his friend told him, he could expect to live for two years and hope to live four. In the weeks immediately following his test results, he reported many dreams of airplanes falling out of the sky, tornadoes churning up the earth. He had one dream in which everyone had AIDS. And we understood this to mean that if everyone had AIDS, then no one had AIDS. Anthony felt isolated, frightened, and alone. During this time, Anthony continued to speak about his life and his feelings but his flow of words became slower and slower until one day he became altogether silent. Sometimes he would come in, speak with me about his work or family, a relationship or a doctor's appointment and then go quiet. On other days he might lie down and be silent for the entire fifty minutes. I just feel so sad, he told me. At the end of one such session. It's difficult for me to convey the feeling of these sessions, the overwhelming stillness and heaviness in the consulting room. There's nothing numbing about the silences. If anything, I listened more attentively. I sat forward on the edge of my chair. There are silences that are anxious where the patient, arms folded, eyes open, refuses to speak and there are uncomfortable silences following the disclosure of something intimate or sexual, say, Anthony's silences were wholly different. He wasn't resisting or self-conscious. Under ordinary circumstances, I might ask a patient who has been silent for some time what they're thinking or feeling, and once or twice I did this with Anthony, but I soon realized that my speaking was an intrusion, a disturbance. As I sat with him day after day, Anthony's silences grew deeper and deeper. One day, lying very still, his breathing slow and regular, he fell into a deep sleep. The first time this happened he woke up a little embarrassed. I I think I'm just very tired, he said. How long was I asleep? But soon, he was regularly sleeping 10 or 15 minutes in most sessions and usually one full session once or twice a week. He told me that it didn't feel like sleep. It was more like passing out, being given a general anesthetic. He was never sure how long he'd been asleep. My first thought was that he was sleeping in his sessions because he was too anxious to sleep through the night at home. He felt safe with me. I would watch over him while he slept. Sometimes he'd dream while on the couch. On one occasion, about nine months into his analysis, Anthony was lying on his side and he looked across the room at my bookcase, closed his eyes and went to sleep. When he woke up 20 minutes later, he told me that he'd dreamed that he was looking in a medical textbook and in the book there was a cutaway photograph of a fetus inside its mother and even though it was in a book, the image was moving. He watched blood passing between the mother and the baby via the umbilical cord and the caption underneath the image read, This baby is being infected by the mother's blood because the mother is HIV positive. And then a wind came up, turning the book's pages, like in the movies when the wind blows the pages of a calendar. And then he woke up. Based on what I knew about Anthony and my ideas about the transference, how we all construct each other according to early blueprints, I took this dream as an expression of his desire to be close to me, but also to keep me at a distance. He wanted to feel contained by me, but he was afraid that I was poisonous and we worked out that he was frightened of my words, that that my words might harm him, make him ill, like the fetus who is being infected by the mother. He said, I get scared that if we talk about it, or even if we think about it, I'll get ill. I thought I understood what was happening in the analysis and I wrote it up as a lecture, but shortly after my lecture was published in the International Journal of Psychoanalysis, I began to feel uneasy about what I'd written. Anthony would still fall asleep during his sessions. As far as I could see, the interpretations I was making were having little effect. I found myself feeling more and more lost in his silences. After sitting with patients for thousands and thousands of hours, I developed an internal clock for 50 minutes. But with Anthony, my clock broke. Now, a whole session could go by in what felt like minutes, or just the opposite. On one occasion, as I was about to tell Anthony we'd have to stop, I looked at my watch and discovered only a few minutes had passed. Though I didn't say it to him, I had the thought that he wanted to stop time, stay forever in the present, where he was not ill or dying. Three years into Anthony's psychoanalysis, his immune system collapsed. His CD4 cell count hadn't been in the normal range of 500 to 1500 cells, per cubic millimeter of blood for some time, but suddenly it dropped from 175 to 43. When an individual infected with HIV had a CD4 count of less than 200, he was diagnosed as having AIDS. And although Anthony looked well and was not ill, it was becoming more and more likely that he would soon contract pneumocystis pneumonia or some other potentially fatal infection. A few days after hearing that Anthony CD4s were critically low, I received a letter inviting me abroad to a clinical seminar and I decided to present Anthony's case. I wanted to do so because I had the impression that the work we were doing was unusual, that more often than not, HIV positive patients were being offered counseling that emphasized advice and reassurance. Anthony called it sugarcoating. He told me that he found realism, no matter how painful, was almost always more reassuring than reassurance. In any case, I was convinced that psychoanalysts would be seeing more and more of these patients. During a coffee break, an eminent American psychoanalyst came up to me and said, a few of us were talking after your presentation and I want to ask you, why are you wasting your time on this patient? He's going to die, why not help somebody who's got a future? His question shocked and angered me. It felt cruel. It seemed clear to Anthony and me that his analysis had helped him to overcome his anxiety and his depression, so that he was better able to make use of his physicians. Analysis also helped him to live with the unknown. In his words, live well while you can, die well when you have to. Still, the American analyst's question stayed in my mind and made me realize how protective I'd become of my patient. A few weeks later, Anthony asked me whether I would continue to see him when he was eventually admitted to hospital. And I told him that I would come each day for his session. We'd continue seeing each other as we were now, five times a week. What if the hospital won't let you? I don't think anyone can stop me coming to see you during visiting hours, pulling up a chair behind you and us continuing to talk. Maybe they'd let us have a room but if not, we could just draw the curtain around us, couldn't we? You want to know that I will be with you as long as you need me. And I will." And he replied, he knew I would be with him, and then he cried. It was after this exchange that we were better able to put into words what he wanted. He'd rather commit suicide towards the end, he told me, than feel that the HIV had won. He didn't want to die frightened or alone. As much as possible, he wanted to avoid pain. He didn't want to die in a state of panic or persecution, but to be able to live my death. Anthony considers himself lucky. Twenty-two years since we first met, his viral load is undetectable and his CD4 count is within the normal range. He's in good health. Because he no longer fears that his illness will become a reality if he thinks or talks about it, he has become proactive in his medical care, and the right drugs came at the right time. Take that, you fucker, he thinks as he takes his daily dose of pills. We still meet, but less frequently, and though rare, There are still occasions when he'll fall asleep for a few minutes in a session, usually on the day of a blood test or its result or after hearing the news of the death of a relative or a friend. When it happens now, it's a marker reminding us both that death is nearer than we'd like to believe. I now think that Anthony's silences express different things at different times. Sorrow, a desire to be close to me, but stay separate, and a wish to stop time. Anthony has told me that he felt these silences were healing too, a chance for him to regress, to be looked after. The deepening quiet was a sign of Anthony's deepening trust. It may be that his silences were also a way of rehearsing the moment of his death, but most of all, they were something that we went through together. And in doing so, Anthony found that he could more easily bear the idea of his death, accept the silence, because he felt himself alive in the mind of another.
0: Extraordinary, incredibly affecting, and uh, thank you. Visibly so, even with you reading it now, uh, in terms of its effect uh, on you. Um, what, what do you, these hearing these stories day in day out? Um, what are there? What is their effect on you, as an analyst? I mean, I, it seems to me untenable, almost, um, to be able to. The weight is the sheer weight of them. Um,
1: that's a good question. I think, and I would think this would be true for you and for people in uh, medicine and in any of the, uh, the caring professions, you don't know at the beginning of your career what a lifetime in that career is going to do. You know, the exposure day in, day out to certain things that you'll see and feel. You can't imagine it. Um, I think that's... um, So that's something which I do think about. Uh, I sometimes think of doctors because I think of someone who comes into an emergency room with a broken arm. I wouldn't know what to do. Um, You would. Um, I do know what to do when someone comes into my consulting room in a state of pain and, and have ideas about, you know, obviously how to think about that with them and ways in which I might help them. So there's a kind of... I think, after a while, a kind of organizing mind mm. and a way of thinking about things. But it's a good question. I don't think we know when we start our work. One of the things, obviously, is I learned a huge amount from this patient. Mm. I was aware that I picked up and used his sugar coating reading it now, because you yes. mentioned uh, it yes. earlier. So one of the things when I talked about in the other case, the sugarcoated hate, is probably from him. Um, the, even words like that, so we 'll pick up and use things. I learn hugely from my patients um, and uh, you know and, and i 'm grateful to him. He would say in a way, of course we all have HIV because we 're all going to die, and he would have you know he has a kind of disposition now and a way of thinking about this, which has had a huge influence on me and you know as, as many patients have so in no way uh, so
0: so acknowledging on the one hand the weight, the weight, but almost in what you 're saying. What we, what we glean from our patients about what it means to be human is in somehow medicinal to that weight for us, potentially.
1: Yeah, I think, I think it is. I, I think to see how other people face these great crises in life um, will teach us, you know, will teach us a huge amount, as, as a great humanising and, uh, and pushes us to learn more and think more.
0: And do you... Are there positions where you find yourselves particularly fond of certain patients um, and uh, disliking of others? Um,
1: It would be odd if I didn't. Um, But that's also very helpful. Like you mentioned, there's a patient who's boring. Um, uh, He comes because his girlfriend's dropped him and, you know, screams at him you know don't you see you're boring people um, his boss tells him he's not going to make partner in the law firm that he's in because he, you know he bores people you know people aren't bringing their problems to so he he's heard this it would be surprising if i found him the most interesting person in the world i mean obviously you know i in a way it's only by my being bored and he was he and what was interesting of course in that instance was some he had a very interesting life and interesting family history what he did was interesting but he didn't know how to do the, make it interesting there were reasons why he didn't and there was psychologically that was extremely important yeah. for us to, so in a sense i have to feel that and if i can then think of, begin thinking like what is he doing i can just summarize very quickly but what he was doing was very interesting he was in a nutshell not letting the present matter how did he do that? So he well, he quickly figured out, for example, that if you tell a psychoanalyst to dream, the analyst won't speak. So he would drag out a dream as long as possible. And I would listen. And every time I started, he'd say, Oh, there's one more thing about the dream. And and there's a way of doing. But I found that was really interesting because it took me a while to figure that out, or also memories and going. But by going into the dream or going into memories, he was not letting the present between us matter. And it helped me to see that outside the room, he didn't let the present matter between himself, say, and his girlfriend, or his colleagues at work, or that he couldn't be present now mm. with people. He, j- he couldn't do that. And um, uh, there was a kind of aggressiveness almost about doing that. So to, to take to, to say, in a sense, this does not matter. Mm. Uh, and there were reasons for that, that which we then went on to figure out.
0: Um, That's extraordinarily both sophisticated and um, powerful, because you, want, you know these, these processes are not conscious. No. Yet incredibly evolved in terms in in how they can impact on your yeah. behaviour. Yeah,
1: they are, and I think in a way. Um, just I, I, you know, we do have conscious ideas about what we do. But I think these things, which sometimes we don't see at first, or we just take it as that is how someone is, mm. can be reactions to a whole way of growing up and living and being that they have found as a kind of compromise to feel safer. It wasn't pleasant for him, but it felt better than whatever he thought the, con- the opposite would be or, or somehow doing something different would be to be in contact with people would cause him pain. Mm. And so in a way, it was his defense against uh, being in the present with mm. other people. Mm.
0: And just before we take some questions, particularly the flip side, I guess, of voice is silence mm. and how um, difficult and awkward um, we can find it um, when, in our conversations with patients and consultations, silences arise, and a right. tremendous urge to fill it yes. um, with something or the other, and yet, in fact, the silences, particularly in that case you just read, uh, speak volumes.
1: Mm-hmm. I think um, I, I've changed on all the. You know, I think I was probably. a bit uh, I think it takes time to figure <laughs> out. As, as I say, even in, in that case too, with certain people, I might have asked, "What? Tell me what you're thinking." In a silence, can you? Put into words what you're thinking or feeling right now. Can you say something to me? Or um, there are things which analysts do. Sometimes someone will say, "Well, no, I'm blank. I'm not thinking of anything." You can then say, "Can you say what I'm thinking? Tell me a little bit about what's. Oh, you're thinking this, and, and they can give you a very rich picture of something going on in your mind. But sometimes uh, it is here. It would have been intrusive to speak, and I do think there there are many, many, many different kinds of silences, as I try to portray mm-hmm. there. Um, And some can be uh, protective or anxious or, uh, you know, embarrassed silences after, as I say, the disclosure of something intimate. Um, There's all just so many different kinds of things. But it takes a while to learn with each patient, I think, who they are and what these things mean to them, and even mean to them on that day at that moment, which might be very different. Yes.
0: Thank you. Can we have the house lights up, please? Um Questions isn't that interesting <laughs> <laughs> There's some questions. I think there's some just here at the front yeah. can we have a microphone please Thank you thanks lucy hi uh, hello um just quite interestingly, during those silences, which can go on for perhaps fifty minutes yeah it must be quite, I find it quite hard to stay alert for 50 minutes in mm. silence. So some, some okay, I'm gonna ask you, what, yeah. what do you think during those times to keep your mind stimulated enough to, as uh, suppose you keep exercising your mind about the questions, when you're going to pace the next question, you're observing the nonverbal communication, that sort of thing.
1: I think like the patient that I, I the story that I read about that patient, uh, as I said, sometimes those sessions could pass in what felt like minutes. Um, I think I said that I've spent, I don't know, 50,000 or more hours with patients, and it, those things can be very different with each person. So with him, it felt like, it's, literally sometimes it felt like the session went by like that. Uh, at other times, it would just crawl by. Um, and I th- then started thinking about that and my experience of time being with him and was that some sort of function about, you know, something going on? Um, I, I think also with some patients you can feel that the silence is very alive, very very uh, crackling. That there's something that wants to be said but they can't. Or um, sometimes people are having an experience of something they've never had before. Um, I've had many experiences seeing patients. Um, privately and in the NHS where you'll see somebody who has never been alone with another person and been silent. (laughs) So I saw uh, someone not that long ago, a young man who was the youngest of five children had no experience of ever being alone in his memory with his mother or his father, there was always a sibling there. The TV was always on, the phone or something. So to be with another person in a room for an hour, and just the two of you, and someone listening to you, um, and that you might even experiment and what happens when you don't say anything, um, is an amazing thing. I mean, it can feel so incredibly powerful to someone that someone would set aside that moment just to listen to them, and whatever they want to talk about, literally whatever they want.
0: You find were the reasons why the it last. You thought the session only lasted a couple of minutes, and other times
1: it was longer. What did you? What did you? I think some with? of them. I mean, as I said, I think sometimes um, I felt uh, there was a, my 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 own internal associations were things like um, stopping time so that he didn't feel that he was dying, to try and go into a moment of timelessness. Um, at other times, as I said. Um, and I think that the last paragraph of that piece, too, I'm pointing to something that I think that there can be multiple reasons. So the feeling of... Uh, uh, also, I think, we, didn't, we don't think about this, but I, I wondered sometimes later, was he rehearsing his own death in a way? Was he experiencing what it might be like to just let go? Not consciously, but just... Being with another person and letting go. Um, so I think it, it meant different things, you know. Thank you. Yeah,
0: thank you. We have some more questions. Um, just back there, anyone on the top <coughs> row? I can see you're not. You're not <laughs> hidden. So if we go over there and then across the top row, thank you. <laughs> oh, sorry, Nigel. Um, yeah.
1: We've, so we've been talking in the last couple of days a little bit about interdisciplinarity. Can you just say something about um, the uses and abuses to which psychoanal- psychoanalysis and psychoanalytic approaches have been put in art and literature and things like that? The uses and abuses. Um, it's very big. I'm not sure. I mean, it's interesting because I read lots. Of it. I mean, what I tried to do in my book was um, strip out all the sort of theory that the one time I ever used a technical word I used in that piece that I read, the word transference. It's the only time in the entire book I made a very clear point of trying to strip out anything that would get between a reader and the experience that I was trying to describe. Um, I think the one thing I would say, I think it's such a huge question, but the one things that I feel, and I've actually written a little piece about, it's not in this book, um, uh, is unfortunately, I think analysts, I certainly thought when I all analysts have to have an analysis, and I had an analysis. And certainly, my analyst was a very distinguished psychiatrist, psychoanalyst. When I went to see him, I thought, of course, he knew everything, and I thought he knew what I was thinking before I thought it. So, um, and that kind of belief, and and so I I spouted, you know, I was I was, a ter- I was an academic, and I just tons of theory and. I knew all the latest journal articles, and I. um, And he said, I think three or four months into my analysis, has it ever occurred to you use many more analytic words than I do? And you, psychologist, when are you going to come in here by yourself? You know, just the, you know, just the two of us. You know, Uh, and I think analysts have, unfortunately, um, historically, let themselves be seen as people who know. In fact, what I wanted to try and convey in my book is the exact opposite, that analysis is a form of not knowing. We really don't know. Um, and uh, you have to analyze, you have to listen and try and figure things out. Um, paradoxically, um, my father-in-law's a professor of chemistry, he's very distinguished, and we were talking recently, and he had read my book. And he Basically, I think he, he, he was saying that he thought that the thing that science and psychoanalysis had in common was uh, the amount of errors and mistakes that we both make. That you know that it's you know the, the getting it wrong. Ninety-eight percent of his time, he feels he gets everything wrong, and he said, "Oh, it's sort of like your work. Too. You know, you're often of getting things wrong. You don't get it. You're trying to figure it out." And um, that there was more of that thing. But I think for a long time analysts, um, unfortunately, probably, and people sometimes academics will use analysis. Portrayed as a way of knowing rather than as a way of not knowing and I think that's an abuse. We have one question at the top. Hello.
0: Yes, um, why is it that stories help us to heal and to change and does this work at the level of the conscious or the subconscious? Well, that's, a,
1: that's a great question about stories, why do stories help us? Um, uh, I think, I mean, my feeling is, I, what I love about analysis is the stories. I love the stories that patients tell, and I love case histories. I, I fell in love with the psychoanalysis probably through the case histories. Um, I think stories are just the most important. One maybe part of what, you know, if anything makes us human, uh, it will be stories. We, it is something that we do that is so fundamental, um, not only and I also think there's so many things about storytelling, about the tense nature of them, that, they, that we can describe something that happened in the past, but a story can also be about what we want to have happen in the future, but there can also be a description about something happening right now. They are, um, we are prodigious, we, and, but how we tell stories and the stories we tell, I think, organize our thinking about ourselves, but of course, sometimes our stories are Um, in the service, and this is about this part of your question about the unconscious, um, they're organized as part of a way of deceiving ourselves, uh, as um, telling ourselves a particular story, perhaps because the true story would be too painful. Um, I don't think people lie because they're bad. or I think people often lie because to tell the true thing would hurt. Uh, It would hurt maybe somebody they loved or it would hurt themselves. So, I, 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 it's it's a huge question, but um, I think it's an incredibly important one. Um, I think stories are, are at at the heart of what it is to be human. So they're at the heart of medicine and and the human sciences.
0: One last question at the front, I'm afraid. Apologies. Is it you? No, just there. Thank you. Sorry. Hi. Thank you. A fascinating story. One of the key elements in clinical medicine is. Obviously the history taking and yes. one of the key cornerstones of that to my mind has always been allowing people to feel that they have all the time in the world to tell yeah. that story and yet that's the thing we clearly don't, both more so in primary care, perhaps than in, the, in my practice in secondary care. I'm interested in your sort of approach to that for a clinician because yeah. clearly, clearly we have a history that we need to get yeah. quite key and rapidly. But also in the sense, also from the psychoanalytical point of view, what is it about 50 minutes that seems to be the magic
1: time? Right, okay. <laughs> Two questions, one's about history. taking. I love when patients are referred to me by psychiatric colleagues and they come with a wonderfully taken history. Part of the reason is, as I said, in my first consultation with the patient, I have two competing things, which is a bit different. I will be trying to take a history and get a good picture of their life and things which have contributed. But the most important thing is this other thing, which is competing with that, which is the listening to the current problem and making contact with them. I'm not sure that those things always sit well with each other. So, uh, and sometimes the history will follow over. I will often the way that I work will see someone two or three times. I also am listening that way to see uh, what they made, what use they can make of the consultation, the first meeting. Um, there are lots of things which I'm trying to do. Um, but uh, it does help. And I find and many of the patients, if not all of them, who come in this book. Um, have come through uh, I would say most of them from physicians who have re- re- referred patients to me um, and so they come often with a history uh, which is often proved to be hugely helpful in the beginning of thinking about certain things um, so that's the first part of the question but it is a complicated thing because I'm, I am, as I said there's a kind of uh, perhaps a competing goal in that first meeting. The other question about the 15 minutes, it was um, an invention of Freud's basically because uh, he needed 10 minutes at the end, I think, of every hour. He worked a very long day. Um, If you read the biographies, he got up quite early, started at 7, worked through to 1. Big meal of the day in his family was lunch. Uh, and he had, they had friends around quite often for lunch, and then worked straight through to the evening till 7 again. So it was like a 12 hour day with patients. Uh, took a break, had dinner with the family till 9, and then would sit down and write after 9, or play cards or various things. But it, uh, but it was um, the day, I think, at first, were one hour sessions. And then he realized I think he couldn't do it, so I think it was 15. I think it's habit, I think now people stick with 50 minutes mostly because um, if one patient learned that somebody was getting 50 minutes and they were getting 45 minutes, uh, or somebody did 45 minutes, and it would just co- begin to start to cause problems, I think more than anything. It's, it's that. <clears throat> I mean, on that cue, we have unconsciously, in fact,
0: okay. extended. To 50 minutes, um, we could do with more are. time. You know, three or four times a week for a decade would be great. Um,
1: you know, get to say that's all we have time for today, or something. Uh, a big round of applause. <laughs> Thank you very much.